Hi, I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Big changes are taking place in the U.S. to keep at-risk kids out of residential treatment centers and safely with their families. It's a result of the Federal Family First Prevention Services Act. The approach is similar to one New York City has championed to reduce the number of kids in foster care over the past 10 years. Advocates are pleased to see the federal government catching up. Danielle Gaffney and Vincent Madeira are with the nonprofit organization Children's Village. Danielle has been with Children's Village for around 30 years. She currently serves as the vice president of community-based foster care, overseeing adoption and foster care, supportive housing, and shelter services. Vincent has been with Children's Village for more than 10 years. He started as an assistant manager in the residential treatment center. Today, he serves as the director of the Children's Village Institute, which includes overseeing their family finding and aftercare programs. Danielle, welcome to Cityscape. Hi, how are you? I'm doing very well. Vincent, welcome. Thank you. So let's start off with a little background on Children's Village. This is an organization that dates back to the mid-1800s. Vincent, tell us about Children's Village. Well, Children's Village is a child welfare organization that um, works with children in foster care um, in both in all levels of care, right? Residential, um, they're actually in homes known as foster homes. Um, and we do some preventive work, right? So we work with children who, and we try to prevent them from going into care. Um, so it's it's a whole plethora of different services that we provide, um, including mentoring and providing opportunities for families and kids. But our, our number one goal is to keep families um, together with their children um, safely. And I guess enter the Federal Family First Prevention Act. What does that aim to do? Families First is a game changer for foster care. In particular, it really changes the funding structure and how foster care can be supported and really focuses on keeping families and children together and safe. We're really excited about it. Now, these are the biggest changes in decades, right, Vincent? Absolutely. Um, so it's it's really more of a change in, in, in how we think about um, the work that we do, right? So what, what, what we want to do, make sure, is that what we absolutely know is children do better with families, mm-hmm. right? Um, no matter how great an agency is, especially Children's Village, um, we cannot be someone's family member, right? Because we have an age limit to the services we could provide. Family does not. So because of that, we need to put all our resources in making sure that children are with families. So for those who are not familiar with the system, what is that age limit? Who are the kids that you're working with? Absolutely. So we, the child welfare um, in New York, uh, you are a child until 21. Uh, once you are 21, uh, with a few exceptions, um, you are now an adult and can no longer be served um, under the child welfare system. So the goal of community-based services is to keep children with families. What types of supports does Children's Village provide to families in the community, Danielle? Children's Village has a wide array of services so that we have adoption, we have foster care, we have community centers, we have residential, we have preventive We have partnerships with different organizations that add to the service delivery that we can provide, um, such as with Highbridge or with Harlem Dowling. I think we recognize that while we want to try to be able to create this great service delivery, that also we can partner with other organizations that have a craft or um, a special niche in doing this work. How many kids are you working with typically, Vincent? 
and we probably serve 10,000 kids a year. Wow. Um, and that's, again, with the plethora of services we provide, right? So that doesn't mean 10,000 children are in foster care. We probably work with 10, about 10,000 children a year. What are among the reasons that kids find themselves in foster care? Um, thank you for asking that. Uh, the first thing I want to do is do some myth busting. A lot of times when people think about foster care, they think of um, abuse. Right, a child was abused. Um, but stats actually show that 75% of the um, removals from the home was due to neglect. So what that basically means was that there was a need not being met. Right, it wasn't abuse. Um, so that really, I I would say poverty um, and lack of resources um, are the huge reasons why children are in care. Now, Children's Village started shifting their services away from residential care in 2004. What caused the organization to move in that direction? I think we had a lot of data just because we were doing this work for a really long time. And I think that going back to what Vincent said, the emphasis on wanting to keep children and families together, residential cannot be a substitution for a family at any time. Um, And so we need to identify uh, significant adult connections if we can't identify family. And so that shift in residential really helped us to be able to see that and work towards that over the years. Vincent, anything you want to add to that? I, it started with leadership. Um, our leader came and, and said that, had just had that mentality Danielle talked about and said that we need to make a shift and this is what we're going to do. It was a culture change in 2004. Has the foster care population in New York City gone down or up in recent years? It decreased. Yeah, it's definitely um, decreased. And because with this whole, they want, again, this whole idea, especially with Family First, and I think New York um, is is re- is really ready for this act to um, come in 2021, um, is this, uh, they adopted this mentality that children need to be with families and do more preventive than removals. I was just going to say the emphasis on kin families and connecting families with kin um, when their own families can't provide for them really has made a big difference on the number of foster children and the amount of time that children stay in foster care. So what's that process like to find kin family? Ah, well, you know, we we like to think that we're the experts on that along with the rest of our system. But, uh, you know, I, I think... And Vincent, you could probably talk sure. about this a little bit more, but really identifying um, the circle of support for someone and then kind of expanding and expanding. It's it's great detective work, but I think it starts with one conversation. Uh, and Vincent can tell you plenty of good stories about how we've tracked down families. Absolutely. So what, the first thing, language is extremely important, right? So when we do find um, people's family, these young kids' families, we don't call the aunt right away and say, can you take the child? Because that is scary, right? Especially if the aunt has children of their own, they quickly look at the refrigerator and their wallet and say, how can mm-hmm. I take on another, right? So we say, "Can you? do you want a connection with the youth? And I, they, 100% of the time they say yes, right? Because that's a different question. And then we think outside the box. Thinking outside the box is what family finding is, right? Um, and that means that we take every single information that we do know and we explore it. So a quick story, a young lady came to us, um, came, to, came into care, and she was adopted at the age of seven. The adoptive mom, because of what got her back into care at the age of 17 now, um, surrendered her rights. That means that she went to court and legally separated the relationship. And so because of that, legally, we couldn't reach out to the adoptive mom for information. But we did know she was adopted at the age of seven. So we met with the girl and asked her, 
give us all information you have on what did what you remember when you were seven years old. She gave us the first name of her mother. She gave us Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn. She gave us some names and nicknames of her brothers and sisters. We tried all. We took all that information and we used Facebook, which is godsend to find people, hmm. <laughs> right? Uh, we used a database that we use called Seneca Search. Um, nothing came back. And so w- my team came in and said, what do we do? And I said, there's one piece of information we didn't explore. And they said Flatbush Avenue in Brooklyn. My team looked at me and said, do you understand how long Flatbush Avenue is? And I was like, you're about to. So we took the young lady, got her in a car, and drove up and down Flatbush Avenue to see if she remembered anything. She remembered a bodega she used to go to. She asked us to stop the car. She got out the car. She walked to an old apartment, knocked on the door. No one was there. But because of New York City apartments, we all know that the supers die in those apartments. Super was there, remembered the young lady had a forwarding address for her biological mom in North Carolina. We found biological mom. She's now with in North Carolina with mom. Wow. That is an amazing story. Incredible. Yeah. Thank you. Thank Where you. did you learn to do that kind of detective work? <laughs> <laughs> well, the thing, so it's, again, family finding is a mentality. The information we don't know doesn't mean it doesn't exist, right? So we need to try everything. And we need to work with the families and work with the young people to make sure that they remember it. How can we get your memory to, to come back, right? And so we do things like that. Um, and then I start thinking about myself. I don't understand what kinship foster parent means if I was not working in the child welfare system. So why would I ever talk to a family member using child welfare lingo and legal terms, right? We talk about family. So what if I was in a family dinner, how would I talk at a family dinner? Yes, let's use that. Let's use that language, and that's what has given us such success in family finding. What kind of support do you provide to foster parents? So for foster parents, support looks different for everybody, but I think at the end of the day, you're trying to hone in on what foster parents need. It's a very difficult and challenging task to be a foster parent. And so we offer things like support groups where families will come together quite often and talk about some of the struggles that they're encountering in their homes. We have training classes, and the training runs the gamut in terms of tailoring specific topics to what families might be experiencing in the home or diagnoses that a child might have. And then we have the individualized support. So we have a foster parent consultant. And that's so important because the consultant is somebody with street credibility. There's somebody who is a foster parent, who has lived it, who has experienced it. And that pays dividends in terms of trying to support a foster parent in the middle of the night when they're going through a crisis with a child and they're really ready to throw in the towel. And they have that person on the other end that is able to kind of talk them down, talk them through the situation and give them the support that they need. Um, We have a foster parent advocate. So that's somebody else who also has been living the the experience that the foster parent has and can kind of tie them into different connects and supports throughout the community. And we eat a lot. Hmm. Every time we come together, we have food, and we think that food is the way to people's hearts, which definitely can lighten any situation or support somebody when they need it. Vincent, you're nodding your head to that. <laughs> oh, absolutely. I think that if the most engaging tool that we have is, is hot food, right? If we, and it doesn't matter what race, ethnicity, what, um, how much money you have. If there's food at the table, people come. 
Um, and so that's why I nodded my head because absolutely. <laughs> Amen. And Vincent likes to eat. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> what would you say are among the biggest concerns of potential foster parents, the questions that they ask you most before they take a child into their home? I, I think that foster parents are worried. Um, I, I think they're vulnerable. Uh, I, this is a tall order to ask somebody to do, and they have an expectation of how they think it's going to go. And I don't think that anybody, whether it's an employee that's working with a foster child or a foster parent, is prepared sometimes for the level of trauma that our children experience. And so we want to be able to reassure them at the front door that we are there for them and there's no kind of cookie cutter approach to how this work is done and it's just something that we need to kind of figure out together it's it's a journey Um, and I think that as much as we can bring foster parents and birth families together to kind of co-parent the child we know that's going to have the greatest outcomes for our children Um, it reduces the child's stress it helps them to thrive and so we've really tried to emphasize that when foster parents come to the children's village So, for example, we have a clinic, a medical clinic on our um, site, and we try to bring together, we intentionally make uh, appointments when foster parents and birth parents can be there together for a child just to have a medical appointment. How simple, you know, that may seem, but that doesn't always happen when children are removed. Uh, Oftentimes the families are overlooked. And so we really want to try to bring foster families and birth families together. How do you do that and not make it awkward? So we embrace the awkwardness, right? So that's the first thing you have to do is understand that, um, validate that it is, it is awkward. There's not a lot of things we can do to prevent it because, and also when in um, finding foster parents, we also try to find family members to be those foster parents, right? So they already know the, the family dynamic, which is huge. Um, and even in that, there's awkwardness because like you're, the aunt is taking the nephew looking at mom like, does that mean you're a better mom than me? And it's, no, that's not what we're saying. We're saying at this given time, we need support. But the family is the, the one that's supporting, not um, care, right? And so we allow the family dynamic to work. No doubt it's easy to get emotionally connected <laughs> to a child. How do you work through those types of feelings as well? You know, the aim is to have that child return to their biological family, right? But how do you then work with the people who are having challenges with that? You know, having that fear of, I don't know if I can give this child back. I want this child to stay with me. We experience that a lot, actually. And I think that we want people to be emotionally connected because our hope is that even after the child has returned to their family of origin, that the foster family is going to remain connected to the family. And you see that so much where then the foster family becomes like the babysitter or they go over for weekends and it continues to support the family because just they're, just because they're done with foster care and they've returned home doesn't mean that a family is not still vulnerable and doesn't continue to need support. That's also where preventive services really come in um, to continue to support a family to prevent 
coming back into care because we know that there's a lot of struggles out there and the struggles are real. And so we really want to be able to wrap our arms around them in any way that we can in order to support families and keep children and families safe and together. The, the family becomes family for the child, right? We stop saying foster at that point because what the, the connection doesn't get lost because we say, all right, the child moved, right? The child still wants a connection with their, the person that they built a connection with. They consider family now, right? Foster care is a legal term. It's not what the child calls that person, right? Um, so when we, we start seeing fun things like, well, then that person becomes respite on the weekends, right? So the father of the child that just took the, and this just happened, actually, uh, father took in a child and um, who's been in, in a care, in, the child has been in care and in that home for two years. The relationship was built with that foster dad. Um, so on the weekends, foster dad calls pop, biological pop, and says, hey, do you mind if I take him this weekend? And the uh, biological pop says, please, <laughs> right? Please, I, I need the support, right? And then that's, and it naturally happens and that becomes a family dynamic. There's no middleman anymore. There's no uh, foster care system saying, okay, we'll set up a visit. No, they do it naturally. They have each other's phone numbers. Do you find that the kids themselves feel a certain amount of stigma being in the system? Yeah, of course. What's yeah. that like? And what do they say? How do you work with them on that? I call it, so what I, what I, I start. I do a. Tra- I do a training uh, once a month with um, current uh, caseworkers, right? And I and I ask them. I want you to think about your most difficult child, and then give me give me words associated with a difficult child. And they give me twenty words, and nineteen out of those twenty are are negative adjectives, right? Uh, manipulative, um, disruptive. And I want to say I want you to put a thousand pounds on each word, and those those that's the weight each child carries in care. Right. Because they are judged before they meet anybody, because those words are now in paper. Those words are now in reports. And so they know those words and that's how they feel. And so what what we need to do is validate that that is that that's how you feel. And I understand that. So what we need to do is say, how can we offer a different opportunity? Despite Family First and your efforts to make sure these kids have a home, I would imagine that some kids still need to be placed in residential care right yeah so how are you evolving your residential programs to meet the needs of kids who are placed with you in that way so i think that residential care should really be viewed as an emergency room it's meant for people young people who are struggling for a little bit but it should be temporary and it can't be a substitution for a family and i think that when we look at what the residential setting can offer we really want to be able to provide a setting that is kind of trauma-informed therapeutic supportive that enforces positive relationships and I think that our residential in particular has done a lot of great work on creating a model and an approach towards working with young people that is really successful. We use the ITM model, integrated treatment model, um, where we have staff and youth kind of together thinking about how they approach each situation with mindfulness um, there's a lot of great exercises. I think, Vincent, you're actually a trainer, right? I, I am. Yeah. <laughs> Take us through a mindfulness exercise. <laughs> <laughs> Concentrate on your breathing, folks. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and I, just to piggyback off that is, is treatment still needs to happen. And if, we, if residential is treatment-focused, it then turns into a, an emergency room, right, rather than saving the kids um, because that was the old – way of thinking of residential let's take out youth um, from really 
poverty stricken neighborhoods um, where there's a lot of violence and a lot of uh, crime. And then let's put them in this beautiful residential. And then we saved it. We saved the child. But what happens when they have to leave the residential? Right. So take that up. Take that mentality out. Make it treatment focused and say, let's teach you skills of what how if a situation triggers you again, what let's use these skills rather than your old ways of coping. Um, and then teaching the family the same language because then it works together. What are the circumstances under which kids get placed in residential care, typically, if there is a typical? <laughs> um, I'm a little biased on this one, but um, the, we, we tend to see um, the youth with what we call the most disruptive behaviors, right? So we see um, uh, kids who run away a lot, um, kids with some of the high uh, psychiatric needs, um, and then to tell you the truth, the older kids, right? If you're a teenager, there's a lot of myths on teenagers going into foster homes. Um, and that's what we're trying to change and advocate for as well, right? If you take a teenager in, you don't have to change diapers, right? Uh, you have some built-in babysitting. Um, but at the same time, that's again, that's just a culture change and, and really training our foster parents and really looking at family first, right? Families that already know this youth. Um, and the relationship is already there, and that's when we see our, the biggest success. How much harder is it to place a teen with a foster or adoptive family? I think that's another myth, um, so that it may be that teens are more difficult or that they go from place to place, from home to home, but we actually haven't struggled with that because I think we try to take this unique approach to having teens in foster homes. So one of the programs that we have is actually called FAST. It stands for Family Supporting Teens, and uh, we get supported by Hilton from that. And it really emphasizes the connection between a teen parent a foster parent and the child, because we know that teens can be a little misunderstood and that they're kind of going through things. And then you pile on top of that just the fact that they're in foster care. But if we really start at the core and emphasize and build upon the relationship and the connection, then we find that actually teens can be successful in foster homes. And there are plenty of foster parents out there that want to parent teens. I, the the um, reference that Vincent made to you don't have to change diapers, you don't have to <laughs> be able, they can make their own food. Yes. The, these are all things that are great about having a teen, but also it becomes an, an extension of your family. It's another adult or young adult in the household that can really enrich a household. How large of a pool is there out there for foster parents when you can't find someone in the family to take in a child? Are there a lot of foster parents out there? Is there a need for more? There's always a need for more. We always need more foster parents. And the greatest recruiter is another foster parent, somebody who has the lived experience, the street cred, as I like to say, for talking about the experience and saying, hey, I can do this, and I find it so rewarding and enriching, and you can too. Um, and those are our greatest supporters. Vincent, what's your pitch for someone to become a foster parent? Oh, you're awesome. <laughs> Share your awesomeness, right? That's like, it's, 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 we, it's all strengths. If you're, we call it functional strengths, but what it, what it basically means is you have talents and you have strengths that you can share with the kids and you could give, you, you could strengthen them, right? And celebrating their achievements is amazing. And that's why I still work 
where I work, right? If when I see a child graduate high school and go on to college, or when I see a child really struggling, struggling with some of the coping skills that they had and they finally got through a situation, that's amazing. And um, seeing families do that is amazing as well. So share your awesomeness. I would imagine you have countless stories, but is there another one you can share with us that is particularly rewarding? For Absolutely. You? So we had a ch- we had a child actually um, who is we're trying to get to the, our board of trustees. We're actually going to um, this is how great he is. Uh, he was with us in the residential for a very long time um, and was no matter what opportunity we put in front of him, he didn't take it. And that's because we weren't meeting his need. Right. Um, and. He actually did something to get him um, to two years in juvenile detention. After those two years, he came back and said, listen, I really understand now that I have to uh, do better and make better decisions. Right. And really putting the blame on him. But we didn't want that. We, We knew it was it was bad things happened to you. Right. So we we reconnected him with his siblings and and he felt this sense of 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 like I I need ownership. I need to, I need to do better for my 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 siblings. Um, so what he did was he graduated high school, um, and then he wanted to go to college, and we he wanted to go away, and we said, listen, why don't you go do two years uh, locally, and then um, apply to a, a bigger college? So he did two years in WCC, did exactly what we asked him to do, and got accepted to NYU. Graduated graduated NYU, and now has a full time job, his own apartment and is going to be a kinship foster parent for his sister. And wow. How do you work to make sure that kids stay together, siblings stay together? It's tough, but I think that we always want to be able to keep um, siblings together. So we try to intentionally recruit homes or cluster homes that might be able to share uh, the responsibility so that, for example, we have one family, um, they live in a brownstone, and so they were neighbors, and they're, I think, were either six or seven children. So the two neighbors had come forward, and one lived on the fourth floor and one lived on the second floor, and they split the kids up, but they're in the same building, and the neighbors are friendly so that they're able to spend a lot of time together. They do activities for each other. They back each other up. Um, I think that sometimes that becomes a challenge just because of the New York City and space. And so we're always looking for um, different unique opportunities in order to be able to support siblings. Danielle, is there a success story that stands out most in your mind? So success... We we actually have a great story coming up right now where we had uh, grandparents, so this was a kinship family, where grandparents had recently retired and they were kind of had this vision of what their life was going to be like once they retired. And unfortunately, something happened within their family and they had to instantly become parents again for seven of their grandchildren. Wow. And so you can just imagine the change and the shift. I think they had visions of going on cruises. I remember grandma saying to me, and uh, she said this was definitely a monkey wrench in her plan. But nonetheless, they were up for the challenge. And then when the children got in their homes, each one had very individualized needs. And so many times they thought that they were going to have to say, we can't do this anymore. I remember the grandfather had gotten sick and they were worried about his health. And through the support of 
staff at the Children's Village through the support groups, people going to their home, developing a respite plan, we were able to see this family through. And they just recently um, celebrated their success by congratulating them and doing King Gap in court. And it was just such a, a heartwarming experience to see this because they had it was a journey for them. How common is it, Vincent, for kids who have gone through your program to come back and want to give back in some way? Oh, very common. So I have I I see I also do a one of our mentoring programs and a lot of our alumni from um, our mentoring program, which is called Way to Success, um, come back and say, "Okay, I'm 24 now. I want to talk to my 18 year old self," hmm. and say. Forget this job in Starbucks. Take the part-time job and go into uh, community college or go into the trade. Because at 24 now, you, I still have the same Starbucks job, and everybody's telling me I need a degree or at least an associate's. And I'm saying, well, we have a bunch of 18-year-old yourself <laughs> that you can talk to right now. Um, and so they always come back, and they really just want to share their story. Um, and this it's credible messaging, right? So when a child comes up to me and tells me, you don't understand they're absolutely right. I did not grow up in foster care, right? We also employ a lot of our youth. Um, so a lot of we remain connected to them long after they've left us. And sometimes they're doing different things and they might reconnect with us so that we have youth who used to be, say, on our campus that work as reception in uh, some of our offices. We have uh, groups and they help to support some of our groups, a rec department. So there's a bunch of people who have actually experienced and benefited from Children's Village Services that then come back and work for us too. Danielle, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. Vincent, thanks so much. Thank you. Danielle Gaffney and Vincent Madeira are with the nonprofit organization Children's Village. More info at childrensvillage.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producers Laura Babiak and Maddie Bristow. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions. If you liked this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to Cityscape on Apple Podcasts. You can also listen to Cityscape on Spotify, Google Play, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Make sure to follow us on Twitter and Facebook at WFUV Cityscape to stay up to date between episodes. I'm George Boldarki. Thanks so much for listening.